Welcome to episode 229 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up the night sky and this podcast is for anyone else who likes going out under the stars. Yeah, we keep just chatting and chatting, Shane, and then it's like, yeah, we should, might as well just just record this and uh, we've been chatting a lot about uh, your pencil borg and the comic catcher and uh, yeah, we're going to talk about some uh, some listener uh, emails that are that are coming through. You've had a lot of really uh, great uh, correspondence from folks, eh? Yeah, it's been really nice as always. Uh, you know, we love reading these emails and we love responding to them. And you know, I think um, and you know, maybe listeners can correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think people enjoy hearing about this stuff too because it's you know it's a very um, really expands the experience, you know, because everybody is using different equipment. Everybody is typically looking at different things or at least from different locations. So it's pretty cool just to see and, and discuss what everybody's doing in the hobby. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of the, one of the questions that I, uh, I wanted to put on here and I'm just trying to find it really uh, quick is somebody had written asking about um, yeah, about our, like how dark our site is. Huh. And I'm having trouble finding it. Uh, let's see. And let's just see, is this it? Uh, no, can't, can't seem to find it really quick, but in the past, Shane, a lot of people have asked like about like what portal, um, how dark our skies are like at our, our, they said our favorite sites this time have been asked like specifically how or where the sites are and different things, um, of that nature. So, Maybe where we should start is a little bit about um, dark sky and the Bortle sky. I didn't put this in the notes, but this, this is sort of a frequently asked question. But uh, maybe just basically, like how how dark is the site that you use most? Because mostly, I think you're you're a backyard amateur astronomer, strangely enough. Yeah, well, for sure, the backyard for me gets the most use just because of its uh, convenience factor. I walk out the door with a telescope in hand and I'm observing. So um, yeah, I get quite a bit done there. Um, now, again, I usually just go with like the, the limiting magnitude and, um, you know, in my backyard, it's probably, so I'm looking at the Bortle scale right now. Um, it does fall within like that city sky to maybe the suburban urban transition. So Bortle seven to Bortle eight, somewhere in that range, mm-hmm. I can typically see like mag five stars, um, naked eye, like even from my backyard, I think I'm getting six of the Pallades typically. Um, Mm -hmm. so, you know, it's not, it's not terrible. There's certainly worse skies out there. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, but the nice thing about where we live, we don't drive very far. Um, and we're in probably Bortle five real quick, maybe even to Bortle four. Um, and then when we are, you know, going to our favorite site, which is, uh, I think if I am speaking correctly, uh, for both of us, it's Grasslands National Park. And really like, I, I don't know how that's not a Bortle one, um, for the most part, it's a a Bortle one. Yeah. 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 So, so yeah, there's, uh, there's a lot of really good skies around us. Um, and again, we, you know, we don't have to drive very far for, you know, pretty, pretty good skies. How, what would you say your, uh, your cabin is, uh, how, how dark is it there? Or what's the Bortle there? Yeah. So the Bortle, I have a, I have a couple of bones to pick with the Bortle scale and, and it's not with John Bortle. He's an amazing amateur astronomer and he'd written an article back in, I think it was like 2001 or something like that in sky and telescope. People can look it up. Um, and, and it's, and it's a good article, but there's a couple limitations. So for example, 
my uh, my my cabin site or cottage site, or whatever you want to call it, um, which I which I did buy in a huge part to uh, to be able to do astronomy from, is uh, is magnitude six, so I can see stars down to magnitude six. However, um, and that's decently dark. I, I think anybody would agree that that's like a pretty good sort of decently dark site. Not super dark, but it's it's like dark enough to do some good amateur astronomy, eh? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It is like we, we've had, well, I, I think I've only been out there a couple of times, but it's, uh, it's been really nice. I've enjoyed it. Yeah. And we were at last night. It was, it was great. There's, you can definitely see like pretty significant light dome um, mm -hmm. from the city and there's, there's some lights across the water and that sort of thing. But in general, the neighbors out here are amazing. Um, you know, um, <laughs> a guy pulled up yesterday, he was trying to maneuver something. And I ran out really quick because I'd sort of parked my car um, while we were doing some lawn work and quickly pulled it in because I'm like, ooh, got to stay on the good side because uh, it's so great. Uh, no lights on when they're not around uh, for the most part and uh, really nice folks. But uh, yeah, so it's it's a magnitude uh, six site without any uh, local lights. There's, there's some lights like 100 meters away and there's some pretty bright lights that are maybe like uh, a few miles away that, uh, that definitely do detract from the view a, a little bit. Um, but like I say, overhead, it's magnitude six. So that means like when you look up into Cygnus, you can see the California, not the California, you can see the North America. Maybe, of course, California is part of the North America, but you don't see it. You see that broken off into part of the sky when Perseus. But anyway, it's, um, yeah, it's reasonably dark. It's a pretty dark site. And, uh, and, and on the Bortle scale, though, it comes out as a Bortle four. And my, my bone of contention, and I mean, maybe, you know, maybe I'm just reading things wrong. My bone of contention with it is like, I was talking to another amateur who lives in a completely different part of the world and, and they are also under a Bortle four. However, like they can't even see the Milky Way from their, uh, from their location. Mm -hmm. um, but they're still marked as, as a Bortle four. So how can this be? Well, it, it's probably because like, maybe they have a few street lamps, like right around them. Like they're probably in. Um, a small community that just has a lot of really localized light pollution. Maybe they have a couple neighbors with um, really bright yard lights and suddenly like in their little pocket, they are sitting at, um, you know, magnitude uh, four and a half or five and they just can't see the Milky Way. Right. I think mm -hmm. probably four and a half is, is really where you lose it. Um, you know, my backyard is kind of similar because I live on the edge of the city and if the streetlights weren't around and my neighbors were dark coated and there's some industrial buildings nearby, if, if, if they had their lights off and this, this was actually, this had happened during the pandemic and uh, from my backyard, although I can't see, I couldn't see the Milky Way as good as out here. Um, but I would say it was like, um, you know, uh, Bortle five, um, maybe four and a half. And I could see the Milky Way. And honestly, if it was like that all the time, like I would do a lot of observing from my yard. Um, but then as soon as, you know, probably like two dozen lights are on suddenly. Um, I really can't see much of any of that. If I sort of shield my eyes, then I can see the Milky Way, but that's not really, that's not really a good sky. And I, I wouldn't say that my sky is like a magnitude five or five and a quarter sky. I say, yeah, it's not really usable for deep sky observing. If, if I said I had a five and a quarter sky and then people showed up at my house, they would be terribly disappointed. You know, it's just not, it's just not that bright. So that's kind of the shortcoming of, of the Bortle scale in, in my opinion. And, and it kind of leaves a lot open for interpretation because mm -hmm. um, you know, unless you're taking, you know, a lot of these other things 
in into account than than it doesn't. So I like like you like to use the limiting visual magnitude mm-hmm. overhead. If someone says, "Yeah, it's six towards the horizon," it's uh, four, like it is here, uh, three and a half maybe in in the worst direction, and uh, that that gives me a good fix. I can kind of imagine what that site looks like. But if someone says, "Oh yeah, it's a it's a Bortle four, like I don't know, like you might not see the Milky Way, or you might see like here we can see detail in the Milky Way. So to me, that's that's too large uh, a variance, and the skies can be almost as dark. It's just just depends on what the the localized uh, conditions are and traffic and all this other mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah, too mm-hmm. too many variables for me to rely too much on the Bortle. It's a good starting point, maybe is the way to put it. Yeah. Does the, uh, does the sky quality meter made by Una, what is it? Una hydron or Unihedron? Um, something like that. Yeah. 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 Uh, do you think that that's a fairly consistent way to compare skies? So for those that don't know what the sky quality meter is, it's this little handheld electronic device. You basically point it at Zenith, press a button, and then it gives you a, a number, uh, you know, usually probably between like 19 and 21 or 22, um, the higher the number, the darker your sky is, and it goes to uh, the to two decimal points, I believe, um, to to indicate you know your your sky quality. Um, so, do you think that that unit would make for a little bit more qualitative comparisons? Yeah. So maybe there's a way to do it. Um, so I had one for a while. Maybe I maybe I still have it. I I think I maybe yeah I might still have it. Um, so, so I had one, I was really excited to have it cause I wanted to take it down to, um, the grasslands national park and, and do some readings. I thought this would be great. And maybe I'll drive into different parts of the park and do all these different readings. And it'll be just cool to have that. And you can put it on like the national lake pollution abatement committee, something or other, and maybe other people could do the same. And it would just, mm-hmm. it would give you like this really sort of objective, uh, you know, uh, quantitative uh, reading, right? I thought, you know, this this would be awesome. So I get down there with it, and Rick Husiak is there, who's, who's uh, a well-known amateur astronomer and and good friend of ours, and uh, and we start playing around with it, and and started noticing some of the shortcomings really fast with it. So, yeah, with with the unihedron, it's it's this little unit. It kind of looks like an old cell phone pager. Um, it's about maybe uh, an inch or two in one direction, and maybe like. Uh, maybe, maybe up to three inches in one direction and, you know, a couple inches in the other direction. It's not very big because it sort of fits in the palm of your hand has like a sensor. You point out the sky, you press a button, and then it gives you this, this reading of like 20 point whatever. Anyway, Shane, uh, Rick and I were there late one night, beautifully dark. We're up on two trees and we were, what we wanted to do is sort of measure the sky because they were going to put in those full cutoff lights, um, in the town of Valmarie. So we were measuring the sky and I was like, what is going on with this? Cause sometimes the readings were saying that it was like, not that dark even. And I was like, what is happening with this thing? Cause it was super good that night. It was an awesome night. And we could, we could actually see the uh, natural sky glow with our eye kind of moving around uh, in the North. And, uh, but that thing was, I don't know whether it was picking up the sky glow and I would point it at the Milky Way and get one reading. I because it says like you're supposed to point it overhead, but what happens when like Cygnus is overhead? So I'm like pointing it at the North American Nebula, and it's giving one reading. I point it 45 degrees off the Milky Way, and I get another reading. Um, so I found like, well, what like what is the consistency? You need to pick a really dark part of the sky to point it at, but the darker the sky is, the more stars you have, and the fewer regions you have to point it. So. 
it, yeah, it's, it's kind of, yeah. It's, I mean, maybe if I, if I sort of researched it and kind of, um, you know, learned about how to use it a little bit more, but I really thought I'd just be able to take the unihedron out, just point it straight up into the sky, hold it for 10 seconds and then get a reading and it would be this awesome reading, but it, it didn't quite work like that just because, um, like the Milky Way is so bright from a truly dark site. Mm-hmm. It, it, it was giving like this, you know, the, the, this offset reading that wasn't even close. Right. So hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Have you ever played with one of those before? Yeah. Yeah. There's uh, one or two people in the Regina club that had them. Um, so we used them out at uh, the Davin uh, observing site that the local club uh, maintains and owns. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't recall using it too many other places though. I, when they first came out, it seemed, you know, everybody was kind of excited about them. And I mm. think they were at the Saskatchewan summer parts, uh, summer star party. So people were taking a lot of readings, but what I do remember from, um, uh, using it out at Davin is that like, you know, to me with something like that, you should be able to do it 10 times, you know, 10 different readings and basically get very, very similar results. Right. Right. Exactly. We, yeah. We didn't, you know, like it was yeah. kind of bouncing around and, and we kept pointing it straight overhead too. So it wasn't like we were really, you know, changing the directions. So now I guess maybe to, to make that a little more scientific, we could have put it on a tripod or something more stable than just, you know, pointing it overhead yeah. with our arms. But, uh, it did seem to have some variance in it. And, yeah. uh, I think at one point it read like a, like a 21 or something, which, you know, you've been out the, the site's gotten brighter over the years, but I don't think it was ever a 21. Cause that's like, um, you know, that's a super dark site according to the SQ. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And in kind of on the flip side in, in grasslands, we were pointing it um, straight up overhead and getting 18.7. I remember, which really isn't that no. dark at all. And, no. and that is a, is for sure hundred percent a, a Bortle one site. So it just like to me anyway, and maybe they had to be calibrated and you'd have to go through some rigmarole, but, but I just wanted it to work super simple. And Hey, I mean, the fact is, is that you go to grasslands, you look up and you can see seventh magnitude stars. If you really sit there and concentrate, you can, you can get maybe to seven and a half. Well, somebody tells me that and with the caveat that there's no localized light, you can't see any light domes and all those kind of riders. You go, well, that's a really dark site. Like I don't, I don't need a, uh, a, a special objective reading to to tell me that like we were down in we were down in the east block there last weekend um and i dropped i had a like a white n95 mask and it fell out of my pocket and it was like glowing on the ground because just like you know uh there, there's just a little bit of ambient light but something that's white on the dark ground there just you know is is just glowing because uh it's so dark and any light that's hitting it coming from the milky way or whatever is just reflecting off of it and you know just gives this very strange appearance like when you start seeing phenomena like that you know you're at a at a dark site but yeah i don't know those, those sky quality meters and then of course it becomes one of those contests well my site is darker because like you said you're right at this site and it got 21 and then i'm at the grasslands and it's reading 18 well then that that other site must be darker, even though it's only twenty minutes outside of a of, of a large city. You know, like it just doesn't make any sense, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So thanks to Roger for for that, and uh, hopefully that kind of uh, sheds some light. But uh, basically, um, you know, Shane's backyard is much better than mine, but he's he's in a city, and it's just a pretty standard regular city uh sky globe where he is where i'm where i'm at right now recording it's a magnitude six site or or a really good portal four i think probably is the best way to put it 
and then grasslands is basically as as dark as you can get you can see natural air flow and stuff so cool um we we got a email from jim he writes us these he's i shouldn't say he writes us he sends us observing reports with a lot of details it's like it's almost like a club newsletter style yeah it's pretty cool it's usually a pdf document that uh uh, it, it, it just, you're, you're almost like riding, you know, in the vehicle with him oh, yeah. to the site and, and observing with him. I, I really enjoy reading them. Yeah. I, I love them too. And, uh, and he goes into a lot of detail on a lot of the different things that he does now just, boy, I hope I don't get this wrong. We're kind of tired this morning. I was up observing all night. I observed all night last night. Um, but, uh, Jim is the person who modified his, that trailer, right? I believe so. Yeah. 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 Like it's uh, like, I think a kind of a cargo trailer, yeah. uh, but you, you can store astronomy gear and sleep in there. He may have yeah. bought it from somebody else that, that did the modification. Not that that okay. really matters, but um, yeah, yeah. It's kind of a neat unit. Yeah. I remember him uh, yeah, writing about that and uh, yeah, sorry if, I, if I'm getting a name wrong here or something, but I'm, I'm fairly certain it's just, my brain is a little bit fuzzy because uh, yeah, I, I went all night. Um, and so he sent us uh, a recent, uh, uh, report. Uh, do you want to read it? Do you want me to read it? I just put an excerpt in. Uh, yeah, I can go for it. Yeah, um, go for it. So let's see here. Side note one, uh, to your suggested binocular resources, I would add Ken Grand's, uh, the next step finding and viewing Messier objects. Um, have you read that book, Chris, or do you have that? Book? I, I have never heard of it. Um, and I'm, I was super excited to, to see a recommendation on a book that, uh, that I hadn't heard of because, uh, I tend to collect quite a few astronomy books. And so to, to have another one to, uh, to add to my collection is, is pretty exciting. Yeah. I'm just kind of looking it up here. It's, uh, yeah, it's on, uh, it's on Amazon and, uh, I'm just trying to get a price, uh, comes in. I think it's probably used or something. Woo. Hardcover. It is coming in at uh, 83 bucks. Yeah. I think it looks like a photo uh, book of, uh, of some sort. Yeah. Had you ever taken a read of that? No, I've not. Uh, I was, I was unaware of this book until um, Jim told us about it. Yeah. And then we also had some uh, conversations with, uh, I think, I think it was Peter who was writing me and we were talking about um, the Ken Glenn Jones book, Messier's Nebula and Star Clusters. Um, which is also an excellent older book, which includes just like sketches and some good history on those objects. So a couple of good recommendations there from listeners. Anyway, um, yeah, keep going with uh, with these. Yeah, ones. yeah. So Jim had uh, a lot more to say. Uh, so on a slightly different note, switching eyeglasses at the telescope and simultaneously using a red light on charts is another struggle for me. Uh, previously, I had to juggle two pairs of glasses and the red light uh, every time. Uh, I transitioned from distance glasses for Telrad, naked eye navigating to reading glasses when looking at the charts. Mm. Even then, uh, lately, I have needed to get my eyes real close to the charts and use a magnifying glass to see small lettering on charts in dim red light. Mm -hmm. I even tried scanning my charts and then printing them out on larger paper. Hmm. And, uh, I can certainly relate to this, uh, the glasses that I wear basically every day, um, like they're progressive lenses. So, you know, they help with, uh, reading, but also, you know, just normal seeing, um, but at night they're not great for distance. So the stars look terrible. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so what I do is I put on my, uh, my, uh, glasses uh, that are non -pro uh, progressive lenses, 
Um, and they're well adjusted so that I can see perfectly, you know, distance. Uh, so stars look great. The sky looks amazing. I use them at the eyepiece, but I can't read a star chart with these things on. So I take them off and without them, I can read quite well. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is a pain and I don't like it anymore. I guess it's one of the, you know, downsides of aging a little bit. Um, so it is a bit of a, a challenge. Um, you know, some things I think that help improve your night seeing is, uh, switching from a red light to an amber light. I find mm-hmm. it just, it's easier. Yeah. Um, and certainly using larger charts, like, um, you know, I, I have the original pocket sky Atlas from sky and telescope. Um, but they've released a jumbo version. So it's basically, it is the exact same Atlas. It's just, it's larger. So it's easier to read at night. So, yeah. and that's been out of stock for a long time. And I think I got an email a week ago. Um, it's, it's back. So if you, oh, wow. if you want a copy of the jumbo sky Atlas, uh, it's, it's available now. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think that's, uh, that's some good advice, um, from, from both you and Jim, um, yeah. And I, and so I, I haven't gone to progressives yet, but I, I think I probably need to. And, uh, the one thing that, that I've noticed for, for a long time is that it's almost like my, my night vision was, uh, was ahead on the curve on this one, because I found that under red light, like I, like Jim, I was just, I've been struggling to read, you know, to, to read stuff and whatever. So I have to take my glasses off and then mm-hmm. get my face close and kind of mm-hmm. look at that. Um, I've seen a lot of observers use the magnifying glass though. I think yep. that, uh, yep. that probably works uh, pretty good. I've been thinking about, you know, getting something like that. Cause my distance vision is fine. Um, wearing my glasses, it's just the, the close up uh, stuff, uh, not, not as, uh, as good as it, as it once was. So yeah, that's, uh, that's some pretty good advice there. Yeah. Yeah. So then, uh, Jim goes on to say juggling the two eyeglasses, red light magnifier was just too much of a hassle, uh, and prob and too easy to drop or mislay, uh, something. And it was usually the glasses. So then he started using a large four times magnifying glass and noticed, uh, that he could just turn off the red light. Uh, on the charts on the table, uh, leave uh, the distance glasses on his face, locate uh, eyes closer to the scope than the charts, and finally just insert the four times magnifier somewhere in between the charts, uh, which were now at arm's length. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he says, that way I get better views of the small print on charts and can just remove the magnifier to see full page chart views or just look up to see in uh, to see an in-focus sky. Mm-hmm. So for now on, when reading small print on charts, I will leave the distance glasses on, uh, lean the red light against the charts and just insert the magnifier between my eyes mm. and the charts. Yeah. Um, I may just leave the reading glasses in the car or keep them in the little belt case I often wear. So yeah, yeah that's yeah, great that's advice. Good. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, he goes, that's, this that's still, yeah, yeah that's okay, his okay. Too, yeah. So then he says, uh, listening to, uh, the actual star, actual astronomy podcast, binocular edition and to Don McColtz's episode number one twenty four. Uh, oh yeah. It's number one twenty four of looking up with Don. Oh, right. motivates yeah. me to try uh, another run at the Virgo galaxy cluster. Uh, my records indicate that I last successfully star hopped through the Virgo galaxy cluster at the turn of the century. Uh, since then, mm-hmm. I am never successful identifying the individual galaxies. I see mm. smudges in the eyepieces, but cannot positively identify which was which. Mm-hmm. Uh, try as I might, I just never seem to successfully identify the objects in six coma, uh, coma Berenices area. 
mm-hmm. uh, in Crossin and Tyrion's uh, binocular astronomy. They mentioned that the galaxies are barely non-stellar in 10 by 50 binoculars. Will it be easier for me with the Canon 15 by 50s? Question mark. Uh, perhaps uh, the 15 by 50s give just enough magnification uh, to make galaxies a non-stellar appearance, but still a wide enough field of view to understand the relative positions of multiple Messier galaxies in one binocular field of view. Um, on my bookshelf right next to Crossan's book is Ken Gron's The Next Step, Finding and Viewing Messier Objects. Perhaps I will have better luck taking on the Virgo galaxy cluster if I just, or if I use the wide field of view in binoculars combined with uh, Gron's uh, Virgo cluster chart. Um, remember that the 40 millimeter Pentax combined with the 10 inch F6 teeter mm. gives the scope its maximum 1.8 degree field of view at 38 times magnification. That's nice. Yeah, it is really nice. Um, if I add one degree and two degree circles to chart T, will that also make navigating uh, the Virgo galaxy cluster easier? Uh, perhaps uh, also add a straight or also add straight lines between the naked eye visible stars. So I know where to put my Telrad for M85, uh, M100, M86, M84, and M49 while hopping across the Virgo galaxy cluster in the binos are my widest uh, field of view with the teeter. Uh, become easier at the very least practical. Um, only after a clear night uh, at the HAS dark site will I know for sure. Mm. Um, yeah, you know, and just maybe a quick reference back to the um, Sky and Telescope Pocket Atlas. Um, in the appendices, it has a like a focus chart on the Virgo galaxy cluster. Mm-hmm. Um, so it definitely helps or aids in navigating that part of the sky because it's wild how many galaxies are there and it's pretty easy to sort of get lost and, you know, uh, struggle a bit to identify which galaxies you are looking at. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, when was the last time you took, took a look at the Virgo galaxy cluster? Uh, two weeks ago, uh, at grasslands. Um, yeah. When Mike and I were observing, we were panning through, uh, Coma Berenices and Virgo. So, um, you know, there's, there's a pile of galaxies in both of those constellations and yeah, yeah we were having a blast. Yeah. We did a, a mini version of that last night. Very, very mini and just took uh took a revisit and just did a, did a cruise through. So yeah, pretty good. Yeah. Awesome. Pretty good. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think you and Eric were chatting a bit uh, and uh, Eric was saying that he was glad you're able to get out to, to grasslands and, and mentioned that M- M53, which is a globular cluster. Is it, is it in boats or is it, or is it over in, Canisman TC? It's on the border of Boots and Canisman TC M53, right? It's a globular uh, Something like that. Yeah, it's kind of in that general area. I thought it was closer to Coma. Uh, let's see here. Uh, M53, globular. What does the internet tell us? Um, yeah, it's in Coma Berenices. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I knew it's sort of on the border there. Because yeah. um, I think M3 is in Boats and then M53 is a little bit further over. Anyway, and uh, yeah, he was just saying that uh, he he forgets to uh, to stop by that one about how uh, he enjoys the summer observing without having to put on five thousand layers of clothes. Um, <laughs> there with you on that, and he's going down to the Nebraska Star Party in July. So yeah. that's exciting. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That is super cool. Um, and part of the correspondence was that uh, we we asked if Eric would. Be interested in coming on to the podcast mm. when he gets back from that uh, star party to talk about that and just you know general observing. Uh, 
Eric has a eight inch suitcase, uh, Dobsonian. And he was, um, uh, that concept as well as the quest star concept was, uh, the motivation for me to do my observatory in a suitcase. Mm. And, uh, he also has a, is it a 17 inch dog or something yeah. like that? I can't remember half, the name yeah. of it, but yeah, yeah. So he's got some big aperture. It would be great to have a conversation with him and, and mm. uh, he's excited for it too. But anyway, I'll let you finish up his email. Yeah. I guess he's got some family down in Valentine, which, which I know is, uh, the, uh, that's actually where they do the talks at, at the star party in some AC uh, facility they have there. And yeah, I've always been curious to go down to, to that one and ha- have thought about it for a long time. So yeah, I would definitely like to get down to the Nebraska summer star party. And, uh, yeah, that would be, uh, that would be pretty nice. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And you get 10 degrees more sky. I think you sit down there. So that's really nice too. Yeah. Yeah. That, that would be wonderful for us. Uh, you know, North of 50 people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, Ethan, Ethan sent us a note here. Did you want to read? Uh, I mean, he's got an interesting, uh, epic observing adventure for his first analog view through a yeah. telescope coming up. Yeah, this is cool. So, uh, just a reminder that Ethan has the, uh, uh the unistellar, uh, like robotic imaging telescope and does a lot of cool things. We've, we've talked quite a bit about his projects. Uh, so this time Ethan writes, hi, Chris and Shane. Uh, first up some exciting news. I'm going to be observing at the Mount Wilson observatory in Pasadena at the end of July at both the 60 inch and the 100 inch telescopes, which is incredible. Mm. (laughs) Uh, so he said, I signed up for one of their public group viewing nights and will be flying down uh, from Oakland for the occasion. I really, uh, only observe the sky through my unistellar four and a half inch scope. So I'm preparing myself to be completely gobsmacked by what I'm able to see through a world-class professional scope, Mm -hmm. let alone ones that have played such huge roles in astronomical history. Mm -hmm. Uh, the 100 inch is the one, uh, Edwin Hubble and Milton, uh, Humison, Humison, Humison. Humison. Yep. uh, used in the late 1920s to measure the expansion of the universe. Uh, so I'll be sure to report back on the experience on an unrelated note. I decided to write up a quick handy dandy primer on telescopes for absolute beginners like me covering aperture, focal length, focal ratio, and magnification, uh, what they mean, why they're important and what's better suited for astrophotography versus planetary or lunar observing versus dark sky observing. I've never been able to find a single source that covers all of the above in one or in a concise way. So I decided to make one. And since I know you have episodes geared towards beginners and helping them get started, I thought you might find this useful since it's coming from a beginner. Yep. Um, and, and, uh, yeah, then you just said, it sounds like, uh, both of you had some great observing up at grasslands. I'm jealous. And, uh, he signs off. Yeah. I, uh, I always find, um, articles by like somebody in, in his, um, astronomy journey, pretty interesting because, like from from my perspective, anyway, the one thing that I find is that as I write things through, it, it allows me to kind of uh, think through some things and solidify some things and answer maybe some of the gaps that I have in my own knowledge. So I, I really um, appreciate somebody else who who's sort of going down that path because it can be a little bit uh, a little bit of a challenge. And then the one thing I really like, did you go and take a look at his at the page? Yeah, it's awesome. I, it I is love awesome. The little like gifs and images that he's got there. Yeah, it's sort of like he took. Um, it's almost like little memes, and he sort of interspersed them throughout the article. So uh, it's very entertaining. I think people should go and take a look. The URL is kind of long, though. Are you able to tweet that out? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll tweet that out. Um, so uh, if you if you're interested in seeing what Ethan wrote, go to at Actual Astronomy on Twitter, and it will be in our timeline. Yeah. Anyway, it's it's very cool. I I think that's amazing that he's going to to take a look through some bigger telescopes. But yeah, I'd be curious to know like. Um, so in in that general area that he's he's in in that general San Francisco region, um, that's where the San Francisco Sidewalk Astronomers still operate out of, which uh, I, I think were were founded in in part by John Dobson and those few other people that were involved and uh, set up their telescopes, um, you know, on street corners and that sort of thing. Let people take take a look. I think I'd be uh, pretty keen to go and uh, and line up with some of those folks because uh, I think they have some pretty large apertures and they go to some of the the local. Um, uh, uh, state parks and, and set that gear up. And, uh, it'd be pretty cool to, to meet up with some of those amateurs, uh, as well, I think. So yeah, there's some mm-hmm. opportunities, um, and having spent uh, a winter, uh, in that, in that area as well. Uh, yeah, I, I certainly have, uh, have an affinity for, for that region. Nice, nice conditions and, uh, pretty, pretty dark. I got a spider here. Let's see. <laughs> well, and, and I gotta say, uh, the... there we go. <laughs> All right. Yikes! Chris Ooh. is bad. Chris is <sighs> a, yeah. Geez, bat- battling nature over there. Oh man, between yeah. them. Yeah, go ahead. But but yeah, the, the like I can't imagine visual uh, observing through a sixty-inch and a one-hundred-inch telescope. That's uh, that's incredible. Can't wait to hear how it goes for him. Yeah, spoiled. Just be careful because remember I I took this person out once and uh, we went out to the darkest place that that. Uh, is in Nova Scotia and it's, and it's like a border one, but not as you don't see as many stars as we do in grasslands. Cause it's at sea level, but uh, we went down there and he had a 10 or 12 inch and it was the best night that I ever saw in Nova Scotia. It was so good. And it was his first time at a dark sky site. <laughs> and oh, wow. mostly he just observed from like a town that he lived in. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, this is so good. And we're looking at M13 and all. I remember looking at like, the Milky Way, and I mean, looking at dark lanes, and it was just amazing. And I think it almost like ruined him for, <laughs> like, for astronomy, right? Because <laughs> you know, it was like every other night after that, no matter where he went, was you know not going to be uh, typically like that. Like that was kind of like, oh yeah, well that's good. And I'm like, no, no, it's really good. This is like the best night. <laughs> but yeah, that guy, uh, I don't think he stayed with astronomy, unfortunately. So yeah, um, yeah, people should. Uh, really get, get out to the dark skies and get out there lots to, to see the variability in, in the conditions. And then you'll eventually after years, get, get some really good nights. Mm-hmm. All right. So we had a note here from, uh, let's see, this is from Robert. Um, and he wrote, uh, hi, Chris and Shane. Hope all is well with you both. And it is. Thank you so much for asking. I uh, just wanted to pick your brain on dielectric diagonals. He says, my scope's are a Mead ST80. Yeah, I have one of those. It's a little F5 achromatic refractor. He's got the Astrotech AT80ED, which is F7. That should be a beautiful little telescope. I also have an ED80F7 that a friend has had for like two years. And he's got a little 90 millimeter Max Sutoff, which is F13.8. He said, I have read many pros and cons and whether to use a prism or mirror diagonal, in these different types of telescopes, uh, and it's kind of driving crazy. Some say prisms are better. Some say mirrors are better. Um, and uh, he said, then I hear you should pair accessories with lenses with telescopes that also have lenses, same for mirrors with mirrors. Drives me crazy. Any comments on this, or am I making a big 
big deal over nothing. I have both types of diagonals. And he says, thanks, guys. Clear skies. Keep up the good work on the podcast. Thank you so much. So what do you think, Shane? Prism or, or mirror diagonal? Both. So he's covered. <laughs> um, the, the, the general high-level overview of, of both of these is if you are probably about F7 to F8 or slower, um, the prisms typically work better. They'll control scatter better. They'll reveal color contrast. All, all of that kind of stuff is just typically better with the prism at longer focal lengths. Yeah. Um, now, if you have a faster scope, then you use mirrors uh, because if uh, you're below F7, um, a, a prism can induce color and other aberrations that you just don't want. So the mirrors are typically better at that point. Um, yep. uh, there's been a lot of research done on this, uh, on cloudy nights. And I think if I remember correctly, Bill Paoloni, who we often reference, uh, he did a big study on diagonals mm. and he had a bunch of mirror diagonals. He had a bunch of prism diagonals. And I think he had a couple like super unique, like quartz or like yeah. gold. I can't remember. Um, so, you know, he, he, he's always very scientific in his approaches when he does these types of reviews, it's well worth the read if you're interested in it. Mm -hmm. I think if you just search like Bill Paoloni diagonal review, it should pop up. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, that's where I got my information from that I just shared about where to use prisms versus mirrors. Yeah. I think in general though, like uh, people shouldn't worry about it too, too much. I think yeah. that these, these are pretty subtle differences. In fact, I got to yeah. say that, um, you know, probably getting good eyepieces uh, are going to yield better results than, uh, than these sort of things. When you, once you've kind of fine tuned them all, then, uh, then yeah, maybe, but you know, I, I have the prism and I got to admit, I, I just use it sort of on special occasions when, when the conditions are really good, I might put it in, or if I'm trying to do something really specific or yeah, but I'm yeah. not, uh, I'm not running it all the time. Yeah. One other side note too, if you ever get into bino viewing, uh, prisms are typically more desirable because they have a shorter light path through them, uh, than a mirror diagonal does. Mm. And when you're bino viewing every millimeter counts in that light path. So you want it as short as possible. Uh, so most bino viewers will be using prisms. Mm -hmm. Cool. All right. Anything else in that one? That is all. Should all right. I read, uh, the yeah, next go one for from it. Peter? Yeah, read, uh, read yeah. Peter. Yeah. So, uh, Peter writes quite often. Um, so he says, uh, hi again, Chris and Shane. Uh, I meant to comment on the issues you raised about including more information on the website. Uh, so that's our website, actualastronomy.com. Uh, and I really appreciated his email. Um, he says over the years, whenever I've been asked about websites, uh, that you have to maintain yourself, my message is the same. Uh, simplicity is your friend. Complexity is the enemy. Agreed. Uh, yes. And that has been our approach almost <laughs> from day one. Just uh, put the period there and say, we agree, Peter. Thank you so much. And yeah. 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 That's we, it. The actual astronomy <laughs> podcast adopts the kiss principle in all aspects, <laughs> which is keep it simple, stupid, or, you know, anyway, or keep it simple, Shane. Come on. Yeah. Keep it simple. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yes. Yes. Thanks that for the reminder. That just occurred to me. <laughs> yeah, that works. 
Um, so Peter not. goes on to say, uh, first of all, for me, the, the great value of the podcast is listening to you both and sometimes guests talk about the hobby of astronomy mm-hmm. from a perspective steeped in decades of exp- uh, expertise. I don't know if I'd say expertise, but you know, we have yeah. experience. So. We do it. We, 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 we go out and we do it. I mean, that's, that's what yeah. we're doing. We have conversations. We make a mistake. Uh, we appreciate people who correct us. So it's all good. Exactly. Um, it has completely changed my approach. Uh, for instance, I very much, uh, doubt that I would have invested so much into learning about and buying good refractors without your mm-hmm. influence. Uh, it must be already a major commitment to provide two episodes a week and you're wise to approach any expanded effort with caution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so basically I wouldn't change a thing with perhaps one exception. Uh, this would be to post transcripts of the podcast on the website, <laughs> Which we've heard but this. I, heard, I forgot a few to times. hit the button today. <laughs> I was going to do this, but I'm yeah, too yeah. tired. Yeah. yeah. So. so anyway, he says that would be helpful in going back for particular pieces of information from an episode. Yeah. Uh, but it could be that the time taken to prepare a readable transcript is excessive. Um, and he's that part. He's a hundred percent right. Like yeah. you could easily post the transcripts because it's not great. No, no, and like. To we need listen a grad to us student. is one thing, but to read the babble is a whole nother thing. And yeah. I guess you could like, you know, do a control F, you know, to search the transcript yeah. things, but um, it, it, I think it would be a very frustrating experience to read it as is. And then for us to go through and actually edit a transcript. So it is readable is just not going to happen because we don't have the time for that. Unfortunately. Yeah. I tr- remember I tried to do that. I like, cause that was that was something that I thought we would yep. do. And we yep. we set it up to do that originally. And then yep. I sat down to do it and I'm like, Shane, I, I can't do this. I just, <laughs> it's, it like, I spent like three or four hours doing one and yeah, it was just, uh, yeah. And you know, and, and the transcriptions are getting better. I've noticed that mm-hmm. they're improving on zoom. It's just, uh, it's just not quite there yet. It's just not quite there yet. And then the notes, like the show notes that we use are, I don't know. Like they're not fully fleshed out. Right. So I put stuff in there. Like we have a special guest today, but I know I'm going to say it's a giant hornet that snuck into the house. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you just read the notes, you're going to be like, well, they never even refer to the special guest again. What's going on. Right. Like I'm yeah, not getting yeah. it. I, um, and, and my notes are even higher level. I'm usually like observed sun. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And then you, you, yeah, you talk about yeah. Yeah, what it is. So yeah, it's kind of, yeah, it's sort of good and bad. Like we're there with you. And the the good is that the way that we do it enables us to very easily do um, a couple episodes a week. So that's that's the good part. The bad part is it kind of makes it a little bit more of a challenge to put additional things in. Like what would be really cool is if we could set something up where people, and I don't know if people would do this, but it would be cool if we could set up so that people would like like post the stuff like as a forum comment instead of um, writing us directly. But then there's a problem with that where like we've kind of struck up sort of some, uh, you know, sort of pen pal take friendships with um, many of the listeners and they probably wouldn't put that stuff in a public forum. Cause it's like, Hey, like how's like the move going and it's not really astronomy related, but you know, I really enjoy having that level of, of communication and correspondence with uh with listeners uh, that have written me. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's kind of, it's, it's sort of difficult to, to kind of go down some of those paths. So, so I don't know. Yeah. We continue to, to think about it, navigate it. And we appreciate uh, the feedback for sure. 
Yeah, yeah. We we do try to keep it simple. And and one thing we've mentioned, uh, I think, a couple times now on previous podcasts, is we also don't want to try to reinvent uh, like cloudy nights. You know, there's yeah, um, there's there's a great forum that already exists. It's well moderated. It's right. very mature, and it's an excellent repository of information and a, a great place to correspond with other astronomers and. Um, you know, I think if we were to try to do something like that, um, again, we don't, I don't think we have the cycles to moderate, No, you know, there's a lot that goes on there. So, um, yeah, we'll just keep making the podcast. And if there's opportunities for us to, um, enhance it with some other stuff, either through the website or maybe other channels, look into it for sure. Um, and if it fits Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just going to say, sometimes the technology like advances and because mm-hmm. I know like Peter made a suggestion, I'm going to go and check out the link for, for maybe better transcriptions. And and because we do get like generous Patreon support from, from the users, um, like some of the stuff that we've bought and added on, which, which really just enhanced like the audio aspects, like I'm using a different headset today. Um, you know, we, we were able to do. And so, so that's like the good part. So if stuff is coming out, um, that, that could be incorporated easily. Um, even if there's a small fee, then we can definitely jump, jump on some of those aspects. But, you know, I think we've taken this in, in some pretty good directions to be able to, uh, to produce a, a couple shows. And we don't have like, like some of the other shows I looked at, I'm like, Oh, it's really cool that this podcast is this. And that podcast is that, but all of those podcasts have a producer and, um, and, you know, when, once you start putting in more and more people into it, which, which we probably could find people willing to, to do it, there's a lot of great people out there. I think that we would, we would create a complexity in, uh, in trying to line up yet another person to, to coordinate with, uh, to record episodes. Cause sometimes that, that can be a little bit of a challenge, even, even just with two of us. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So, yeah, no, it's very, uh, very nice that, uh, that we do get so many, so many listener emails. That was, uh, I think one of the biggest surprises because, uh, yeah, I, I certainly wasn't expecting that people would write us and, and it's really great to, to read everybody's, uh, observations. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, I enjoy it a lot and it's, uh, it's just a lot of fun. It, you know, we, I have a lot of fun just recording it, but, um, you know, in between uh, sessions, I really like reading the emails that we get. It's, it's great. Yeah. I also enjoy like uh, going out and observing. And then sometimes like uh, Chef Ozzy wrote us today about, um, I think it's like a possible meteor shower from, from a new comet. I got it sort of, or from a, from the comet Holmes that kind of disintegrated there, um, 14 or 15 years ago. And, uh, and I'm like, Oh, I hadn't heard about that. I got to go take a look and see, um, uh, you know, see if that's actually, uh, a, an opportunity to, to make some meteor uh, shower expectations, you know, uh, for, for folks. And I just like that kind of stuff, like things that I otherwise wouldn't have thought of or gone and looked at, um, you know, like last night I went and looked at the Virgo cluster because, um, you know, somebody, a couple of people had, had mentioned it in their correspondence or, um, you know, different things, uh, of that nature. It just really kind of enhances my own astronomy. And then hopefully by, uh, by hearing, hearing me ramble on in, in my tired state today, hopefully it's helpful to other people, but you know, as, as time goes on and I, you know, uh, and, and well, well rested, then, uh, then, then I think the experience kind of starts to come through a little bit better mm-hmm, for sure. Yeah. Pretty tired today though. Let me tell you, <laughs> I wasn't sure you, you should go have a nap. <laughs> I wasn't sure. I was like, should I record Rebecca's like, yeah, you are not doing good today. <laughs> like I get out of bed and I'm like, Oh, this, this doesn't feel good. 
this doesn't feel good. That was a long, <laughs> that was a long session. What I've been doing before is uh, like earlier in the week is I was sleeping and then getting up and observing and that's fine. And I'm okay doing that. But I was kind of getting a little tired after um, a few, three or four nights of doing that. And then, um, you know, it's great. I always love observing with other people. Um, and so I was really excited. Mike was coming out and I, I never bothered to really sleep. And so I was already a bit on the tired side. I'd already done like we've done a bunch of yard work and stuff. And then, uh, yeah, to stay up all night. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So this is me in a very tired state. That's very good. <laughs> right on. Good stuff. Anything else to add to this? Or what are we at? Two hundred. Is this two hundred twenty-nine? Two twenty-nine. Yeah, twenty-nine. Next yeah. week is two hundred thirty. We should have a special celebratory uh, cake or or pineapple souffle or something. Well, if you're making pineapple souffles, I'll come over and we'll record <laughs> in, in person for the first time ever. We should. We should. <laughs> we should do one. It would be. It would have been good today. There's a little bit of wind and there's an awful lot of songbirds, but if we get a still day and once they, they finish working on uh, the deck here, then uh, yeah, it'd be great to, uh, to come out and throw the laptop on and we can record and you can hear all the birds. I don't know. You probably can't hear them now, but there's an awful lot of birds here and they're chirping and singing and the lilacs are blowing in the breeze and yeah, be, be a lot of fun. Yeah, for sure. All right, cool. All right. Well, thanks, Shane. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And uh, yeah, as always, uh, we're always really excited to hear your observing uh, notes and, and emails, see what people are up to. Um, and yeah, because we are going into perpetual twilight tonight, and that means that we will not have dark skies again until uh, the second week of uh, July here around July uh, 7th or 10th or something like that. Um, so we might get a little bit of observing in, but until that time, uh, please send us your observing notes because we'll be relying on them a little bit more than usual. Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>